This is Peter Franson from SpiritBlade.net. I'm thrilled to share with you this unique look into the origins of the SpiritBlade audio drama trilogy. For more information about these cinematically produced full-cast audio dramas, visit SpiritBlade.net. And right now, prepare to dive into this enhanced audiobook experience as we present Spirit Blade, a novel by Peter Franson. Part 5 Claudius Falcor was a busy man. In the last four years alone, his company, Atlantis Incorporated, had risen from being a competitor in the new technologies market to the new position as its driving force and standard of excellence. He was a ruler, a reaver, and a conqueror of every obstacle. His employees numbered in the millions and stretched across the globe. As the ad stated, Atlantis had risen from the sea to restore the glory of mankind. Atlantis products and systems were used in every household on the planet. Only his support of competing companies kept him from having an unlawful monopoly. Claudius Falcor was easily the wealthiest, most powerful man to ever walk the earth. And from his towering office throne room, he was determined each day to find a way to increase his dominion. But by 4.30 on this particular day, Falcor was ready to go home. He was nearing the close of a deal that would net him almost one-tenth of what he was already worth. In his elaborately furnished office of polished gray marble, Claudius barked into a dime-sized receiving unit hovering over his desk. No, unacceptable. If your people don't want to do business, just say so. Don't insult me with your pathetic bargaining postures. Claudius forced the receiver to his desktop with his palm, ending the transmission with a resounding blow to the finished oak beneath him. He took the cigar stub from his mouth and smashed it into the ashtray on his desk, reuniting it with six brothers. Standing, he turned to the massive window behind him that looked out on the city. Gateway, it had been named. Ten or fifteen years ago, there had been nothing visible here but Arizona desert land. But when the Shada came to Earth, they brought with them technology that added a speed and quality to architecture that had never existed before. Claudius Falcor looked out on twenty million people in a city he considered to be his own. He smiled at the knowledge of the power he possessed. His chest swelled and his eyes beamed as he pressed his palms against the glass and whispered, You're mine. A hologram flaring to life on top of his desk broke the reverence of the moment. A woman appeared in its projection, dressed in a sharp but modest blouse and skirt. "'Sorry to bother you, sir, but the council is on Stream 7. They wish to speak with you immediately.' Claudius froze. His face was drained of its color as his gut wrenched inside of him. As powerful as he was, Claudius Falcor still had authorities he remained subject to. The Silicon Foundation was the source of his success, and should they ever desire it, they could become the catalyst for his downfall.' Claudius became thankful once again that his secretary could not, in turn, see him on the other end of communication. Taking a deep breath and steadying himself, he answered. Put them through on a secure channel, he managed, lacking his usual dynamic edge. Taking notice of it, he added, And Janine, if anyone interrupts our discussion, it will be your job and your professional life, he finished with a snarl. Good. Now he felt more like himself. He could feel his powers returning to him. He pulled in a deep breath and commandingly pressed a pad in the corner of his desk. Instantly, the room was plunged into darkness. A major disadvantage of speaking with the Shaden Council was their insistence that it be only through full environmental relay. He knew this game well. He was positive it was an intimidation tactic designed to frighten him, making him more pliable. It was working. A column of light erupted from the floor beneath Claudius in a blinding flash. The room temperature dropped by ten degrees and the walls began to echo back the sound of breathing. 
his own. Although the light from below illuminated Claudius, the remainder of the room persisted in blotted out nothingness. His pulse quickened as he sensed his approaching interrogation. Twisted, shaden voices spoke in unison, almost chant-like, and the chairman of Atlantis Incorporated nearly lost all composure in the presence of their chilling overtones. Claudius Falcor, we have been infiltrated. The voices scraped across the walls. Someone knows about the garden. Someone knows about the tree. They will destroy us. That's impossible, the fat cat chuckled nervously. No one outside this company even has access to our systems. Who could have found those files? A second column of light burst open in front of him, projecting the holographic image of a brown duffel bag. The Atlantis logo was imprinted on the side, accompanied by the number 0275. Falcor mouthed the number, searching his mind. Ran Galvanic, the council stated. His work supply bag. But Galvanic left the company years ago, Falcor stammered. Perhaps as an employee, but he has returned on several occasions, it seems, as a thief. The bag evaporated and was replaced by numerous photos and biographical descriptions of men. One after the other, they were summoned and put on display for the businessman. Fundamentalists, Falcor. The council unified in their cold recitation of the word. We believe them to be part of the underground liberation force. Last night's raid effectively wiped out 60% of their number, but Rand Galvanic and Vincent Kraft are likely still alive. The corporate chairman swallowed a giant gulp of nothing. These are your people, Falcor. Your responsibility. In one week's time, we will have the tree. But in 72 hours, we will have their heads. Or yours. The transmission cut off and light was restored to the room. Claudius Falcor released a chest full of air and leaned against his desk in relief. His eyes grew distant, and his fear slowly drifted away, replaced quickly with rage. Growling, he slammed his fist onto a relay pad on his desk. The image of his secretary illuminated the desktop. Falcor's face burned in wrath. Get me the Nephilim! The xenomite walls in the recording chamber continued to hum quietly in response to Merrick's cutoff in the final phrase of music. Six tiny metallic spheres hung in the air, encircling his head. Hopefully these new surround mics are doing their job, Merrick thought. Better reinforce the energy field, though. Too many xenoharmonics in the last run-through. Silently, Merrick waited for the woman in the hollow projection in front of him to signal a thumbs up. The woman brought her eyes up from examination of the sleek console in front of her and smiled. Sounding great today, Merrick. How did you feel about that one? Ebony Ravenloft. Merrick was quickly heading into a third year with Ebony as his signed producer, but there had never been any sense of rank between them. Ebony could often seem distant and hidden from the rest of the world, but she and Merrick had become fast friends in their work together. Merrick had always had a shortage of friends while growing up. Ebony more than made up for his poor track record. They talked about anything and everything, spending hours together outside of work on weekends. It was never long before a conversation between the two became a spastic laugh riot. In the last two years, she had become his best friend, and Merrick couldn't imagine a time when they hadn't known each other. It often surprised Merrick that they had never become more than friends. She was strikingly beautiful. Her dark hair fell straight down around her shoulders, accenting deep brown eyes that were constantly watching, constantly observing the world around her. Although she barely spoke a word to most, people fascinated her. It had been her watching eyes that had first grabbed Merrick's attention. 
Three years before, they'd met after a service at the Public Center for the World Church of Unity. Merrick had provided music for the entire session that day. For nearly an hour afterward, he had stayed to hobnob with the church elders, and like a piece of scenery, Ebony had sat and listened to the entire conversation from a pew three rows away. As the conversation broke and the men parted ways, Merrick had taken notice of the young beauty and approached her. I said, how did you feel about that one, Merrick? Merrick broke suddenly from his daydream and looked blankly at the holographic woman in front of him. What's going on in there, Merrick? She smiled and rested her chin on her laced fingers, probing his mind with her eyes. Merrick returned her smile and looked away, going back to his memory. I was just thinking of when you and I met. Ah, Ebony grinned as though finally catching the punchline. She chuckled and shook her head. I can't believe you thought... Oh, come on, Eb, Merrick jumped, pointing his finger in accusation. You were totally checking me out. Get over yourself, Vendarius, Ebony threw back. I work with musicians, but I like my men tall, dark, and tone-deaf. In a mock rage, Merrick swiped his hand through her image. A shocked Ebony evaporated as the projector switched off. Back in the control booth, the door slid open with a hiss as Merrick exited the sound chamber and joined his producer at the panel. Popping down on a chair next to her, Merrick stared Ebony down as she finished work at the console. Not even a little bit, he probed with a hint of pleading. Ebony leaned forward and held Merrick's face in her hand. You know I love you, guy. She smiled and kissed him on the forehead. Jerking back abruptly, she inspected him, her face gathering inward. You smell like crack. She looked him up and down. You look like it, too. Where the fritz have you been? Merrick smelled his sleeve experimentally, then looked at Ebony and started to grin. Finally, he shook his head. It's complicated. All right, Ebony lifted her hands in surrender. I don't need to know about your crazy nightlife, so long as you come here in the morning and make the music. Ebony turned back to the control panel and began calling up the recording Merrick had just finished. Silence came over the small room. Merrick watched her as she worked and looked for an opening for what he wanted to say. Then... Realizing there would never be a good one, he balled his fist and started in. Eb, do you ever wonder if there's a god? She stopped and turned fully to face Merrick. Now what kind of a question is that? We've been going to the center together for years. Lots of people are on a path to god. She looked at him as though he were hiding something. Her smile failed to conceal her concern. What are you thinking, Merrick Mendarius? Merrick became suddenly serious that maybe there's just one. Ebony looked around uncomfortably, unable to meet Merrick's gaze. What, you mean just one path? Merrick nodded solemnly. Get serious. What's the point? They're all essentially the same. Not all of them, Merrick retorted. Did you know that there's a god who claims to be the only way to heaven? Ebony turned quickly back to her work, avoiding Merrick entirely. You shouldn't be telling me this. Why not, Eb? Merrick leaned forward insistently. The WCU welcomes all theories for divinity, right? Not the ones that tell everyone else they're going to hell or something. Merrick scooted back in his chair as though he'd been struck. Nobody said anything about going to hell. Ebony laughed uncomfortably and, with nothing else to say, continued calling up the recording. Merrick sat in dumbfounded silence. He'd never realized how intensely the topic of absolute truth was avoided by everyone. For three years, he and Ebony had attended the same church and heard the same messages every week. They would both readily discuss how wonderful they thought the WCU was, or how they had recently been inspired by a session. Yet suddenly, at the first mention of an absolute, Merrick's best friend had turned against him. 
With no warning, tempers had flared and walls had been erected, and as Merrick sat helplessly, searching for common ground with Ebony for the first time in years, he wondered if he might have reacted the same had their positions been reversed. All right, Eb, he offered. I'm sorry. I I won't bring it up again, he vowed. Ebony switched off her console and swiveled in her chair to face Merrick again. She looked at him silently for a moment as her eyes glistened the threat of tears. Merrick, I'm not mad at you. I just... Her voice faded. She wiped her eyes on her long-sleeved blouse and smiled, fighting her emotions. My dad wasn't the most forgiving man, and he definitely believed in hell. He even told Mom and I that we were going there once. Merrick's face fell in empathy. Crack, Eb... I didn't know her. I'm sorry. Ebony's gaze fell to the floor as she continued. The doctors said it was a chemical imbalance, a rare condition, almost untreatable. We knew it wasn't his fault. She shook her head slowly. But that didn't make it any easier to live with him. She looked up at Merrick again, bringing the relevance into focus. He was what you'd call a fundamentalist. He believed in that fritzed-up god that was big till around 15 or 20 the one that sent everyone to hell that didn't have his personal stamp of approval. Dad used to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, all sorts of nasty grack. Ebony became distant as she stared off through the wall. Every now and then, on his clear days, he would almost seem kind of sad. Her eyes echoed the sentiment. And he'd try to tell me and Mom that he loved us and, and that his God did too. Her eyes narrowed as she turned her focus back on Merrick. A red intensity burned from the back of her eyes. Made a lot of sense when he would turn around and yell at us about judgment fire and more of that weird glitch he learned from his dad. Merrick was speechless. Ebony had joked about her crazy family once or twice, but she'd never hinted at anything to this degree of intensity. He couldn't imagine a religious system that condemned such people to hell. Where did his dad get all this from? Merrick inquired gently. Some old religious book, she answered. It's pretty fritzed up, so they banned it from bookstores a while back. Another lost religion? Merrick wondered. He hoped it had no connection to the god of the liberation. Anything about a guy named Yesu in it? Ebony searched her mind, trying to remember. Hmm, no. This god's name was Christ something, or something Christ. She shook off the details in her mind. Anyway, I... As you can imagine, the idea of a god that sits up there waiting to fry people when they die doesn't exactly appeal to me. There are so many loving people in the world that are so sincere about their individual beliefs. I'm not interested in believing in a god that sends those people to hell. Merrick broke from her gaze and stared off in silence. She'd made a very good point, he thought. And she'd also brought something else to mind. Ebony. Merrick focused on her again, attaining her full attention before going on. This guy, Christ... He claimed to be the only true god, too? Yeah, she nodded. That's what Dad was always ranting about, anyway. Ebony cocked her head slightly, reprocessing Merrick's question. She was noticeably troubled. Merrick, what's going on? What kind of religious nuts have you been talking to? Merrick stood, pushing his chair back in its place. It's nothing, don't worry about it, he lied. Ebony rose to match him. Merrick, where are you going? I've got guests back at home. I shouldn't keep them waiting. Merrick, wait, she reached out to hold him back, but instead jerked her arm to her side with a sharp cry. Eb, what is it? Merrick stepped toward her in concern. Uh, Ebony let out in frustration, rubbing her shoulder. It's nothing, I just slept on it wrong, Merrick persisted. Eb, you said you were going to have that checked out. She dismissed it with a wave of her arm. Merrick, 
Lots of people wake up feeling a little stiff. She turned the focus back on him. It sounds like you're the one who needs to check some things out. She had him once again. He sighed and lightly put his hand on her right shoulder. Okay, I'll get myself straightened out. Stepping back, he headed for the door, but turned at the last moment, pointing. And you do the same, young lady, he smiled. Whatever, grid boy, she grinned with venom. Ooh, Merrick grabbed at his heart, then returned in defensive accusation. Just remember, you wrote the dumb thing. Ebony sent him a sweetened row of teeth. Yeah, but I'm not the one people see when the ad comes on. Merrick couldn't stop his lip from pulling back as he shook his head. Ugh, I hate you. Ebony shrugged. That's not a breach of contract. She lifted her hand in a miniature wave as she smiled. See you tomorrow, she sang. Merrick returned an informal salute and headed out. Ebony's a great friend, he realized as he made his way out of the building. They didn't always see eye to eye, but she kept him thinking. And he definitely had more to think about, and more to learn. He had a basic understanding of who Yesu is, but now there was another contender for Throne of the Universe. Christ. David was feeling a little better. He'd had some time to sleep in Merrick's block while the others had left on various errands that morning. For nearly an hour, David had been lying on the couch he had drifted into slumber on, staring at the same spot on the ceiling. "'You did what was asked of you, David,' Ran had told him before he slept. David knew that. The will of God had come so forcefully to him that time that it was unmistakable. Those men were meant to die. But it wasn't having carried out the execution that bothered him. What bothered him was that he had enjoyed it. Three months ago, he had been nobody. By his age, you were supposed to have completed your education and have a stable place in the world. But his life had been anything but stable. In school, he'd been mocked and rejected by his peers and treated harshly by his superiors, all because David knew something that seemed lost on the rest of the world. He knew that in everything in the universe, there is only one final truth. He didn't always know what it was. He recognized that no man could know the truth of everything, but he also realized that just because no one knew the truth of something did not mean the truth did not exist. He'd grown up in the World Church of Unity. His parents were active at every council meeting, but it just never made sense to him when the church speakers would explain how no single belief can be true for everyone, that each person needs to find the truth that is real for them. The idea circled in his mind throughout his youth. He was only 19 years old now, but he couldn't help but think that he had uncovered a lie that so many of his elders had been fooled by. If no single belief could be true for everyone, then how could he trust in the belief that no belief can be true for everyone? Wasn't the church asking everyone to accept that belief as the truth? A deacon at the church had also told him once that in order to embrace the church, he would have to be ready to do away with the primitive form of logic that had evolved in the Western world. David, my boy, he'd said, you can't truly embrace everyone in love if you're always telling them they're wrong in what they believe God to be. Our views can all coexist. God doesn't have to be a personal being. She can also be a force that flows through all life. Our God is in you, in me, in that tree over there. She's everywhere, loving us and wishing us well as we learn our true potential for greatness and eventual perfection. But, Deacon Price, he'd responded, if I'm supposed to accept that God can be both a personal being and an impersonal force... That's right, the deacon interrupted, trying to anticipate his pupil. The ideas are contradictory, but using a more spiritual logic, they can exist together, he'd finished, smiling gently. Yes, sir, but... 
Wouldn't that logic also allow for the logic system I'm using to be utilized in pursuing knowledge of God's nature? The deacon had looked confused for a moment. I mean, sir, our two systems of logic contradict, but using the spiritual logic you're talking about to judge our two systems, my system is shown to be just as valid, isn't it, sir? David had paused, unsure of how to read his mentor's vacant expression. I mean, can't both of our logic systems coexist, too? He would never forget the look of disappointment Deacon Price had given him. David, I'm sorry. I guess you're not as ready for spiritual matters as I had thought. He'd felt so rejected in that moment. David had been ten at the time, and in the last four years his feelings of rejection had only been substantiated. The WCU had told his parents that David's resistance to the teachings of the church was hindering their spiritual progression. Both the church and David's parents came to the conclusion that he would be better off spending the remainder of his adolescent years in a WCU private school. He'd spent little more than a month there. Five weeks after his registration and admission to the school, David had left the campus under cover of night and found his refuge in what was known to this day as the Undercity. Gateway City had been built so quickly with acquired shade and technology that earlier building projects had been abandoned before completion in favor of utilizing shade and construction methods. The remaining structures had become havens for transients and those too poor or unqualified to acquire their own housing. David lived there with hundreds of other forgotten souls, scrounging for food and shelter. Many of them shared David's unique views and were forced to live there as outcasts of the civilized world. Together they supported each other. Together they hoped that one day the God they believed in, whom they referred to as the only, would rescue them from their miserable fate. A year ago, a strange man had visited their campground. He claimed to have a message from the only. He told them that a time was coming for those who serve him to rise up and tell the world of his existence. No one knew what to make of this strange man until he showed them the proof they had needed. As the camp council met one night to discuss spiritual matters with the stranger, he said something that startled all who heard him. I cannot die, he had said. Not today. The people gathered had at first kept silent, unsure of how to respond, but slowly a snickering made its way through the circle around the evening bonfire. Prove it, a boisterous baritone called from the crowd. Throw yourself into the fire. The crowd erupted into laughter. The stranger had remained silent, but noticed David sitting near the front of the crowd. No, he said evenly to the crowd, but his eyes remained locked onto David. He took two steps and crouched down near the young man. What's your name? he asked. It was the first time David had seen him so close. His hair was frosted gray and wrinkled lines clawed outward from his eyes. He appeared to be in his sixties, although his eyes expressed a youthfulness closer to thirty. David, sir, he had responded. Hello, David. My name is Isaiah. Would you mind helping me with something? He smiled, hinting at mischief. Like what? David asked cautiously. I want this fire to be bigger. At least five times what it is now. Can you help me bring some more wood to burn? He smiled again and looked at David. David had sensed at that moment that the stranger already knew what he would say. Yeah, sure. The two rose silently and retreated slowly from the mocking crowd. They made a 15-minute walk to a building commonly stripped for firewood and climbed to the third floor to begin demolition. They worked in silence for a few minutes, loading the wood pieces onto a tarp to drag behind them. As David picked up loose portions of wood, Isaiah noticed the lack of calluses on his hands. He ventured a question. How long have you been here, David? A few months. 
Isaiah had hoped for more from the boy, but the silence continued. He remained persistent, determined to develop deeper communication. What brought you here? David set a bundle of wood onto the tarp. I didn't belong where I was. They, they didn't like me. I can't imagine why, Isaiah said with a smile. You seem helpful and sincere, even to an old stranger like me. Isaiah placed another bundle on top of David's. I didn't think the same way as everyone else. They told me that I should believe in the teachings of the WCU or, or I would never become enlightened. David dropped another bundle of wood onto the tarp, unable to mask his irritation at the memory. Isaiah paused for a moment, then stood and looked out through the stripped-down gap in the wall to the stars above. That's such a funny word, isn't it? Enlightened. It sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? He turned to David, who had stopped gathering wood and was now crouched down by the pile, looking at this fascinating stranger. What do you think of when you hear that word, David? David's eyes traveled to the moth-eaten carpet as his finger traced a shape of its own accord. I don't know. Peace? Tolerance? Love? Mm, Oneness? His finger stopped as he looked up at Isaiah. An understanding of who God is. And you want that, don't you, David? Isaiah stated rhetorically. Not if it means checking my brain at the door, David grumbled. It seems like everybody that's trying to get enlightened ends up frying logic and trading it in for a false sense of security. They live in denial of the truth. Isaiah had difficulty hiding his pride for the boy. What is the truth? David stood, pulling at the corners of the tarp to gather the wood together, hoping to do the same for his thoughts. I don't know, he paused and then clarified. But I know the WCU is way off the mark. Hmm. Isaiah nodded and turned back to the night sky. Do you know why I look at the stars, David? David stood to join him. To be enlightened, Isaiah answered, as the word is truly defined, to be freed from ignorance and prejudice. Isaiah took to one knee, almost level with David, and pointed, sweeping his hand across the dark expanse above them. Look at them, David. Each star represents a solar system not unlike the one we have revolving around the sun. About 8,000 are visible to our eyes, but there are more than 300 billion in our galaxy. Imagine that. We think of the distance to Pluto or Shadum to be so great. We think of our solar system as so large, but there are 300 billion other solar systems out there in the galaxy. David's eyes began to scan the obsidian sky as he listened to Isaiah. His sense of wonder increased with each word that fell from the old man's lips. And somewhere, deep in space, far beyond what we can see without artificial means, lie more than ten billion other galaxies, each with billions of solar systems. Isaiah paused and chanced a look at the wide-eyed young man. That, David, is how I become freed from ignorance and prejudice. The universe itself makes me aware of how little I know. It prevents me from ever thinking I have it all figured out. It keeps my mind sharp and open to new information. It clears away the threat of prejudice because in my ignorant state I cannot afford to disregard any source of information that may lead me to the truth. Then you worship the universe? David asked, a little confused. (laughs) No, the old man chuckled. Far from it. He looked David evenly in the eye. I worship the God who created it. But he has given us the universe as a tool, a guide, 
to understand him and his role in our lives. For instance, he uses the stars to remind me to trust in him, to trust that he has it all figured out. David's eyes fell in disappointment. Sounds a lot like something the church would say. Wait, David, hear me out. He placed his hand on David's shoulder. God gave us minds, and he wants us to use them. The mind is a tool and probably the most valuable one we've been given. The only wants us to search things out, reason through them with our minds. But he also knows we have limits and that those limits will frustrate us at times. It's because of those limitations that I turn to him for help and guidance or sometimes just comfort. When reason has taken me as far as it can, I need to be reminded that there is one who knows the rest of the path and that he will give me the knowledge I need when and where I need it. Okay, David said. Knowledge and comfort are both good, but what about power? David glanced back toward the camp. Everyone at the camp believes that the only will come someday and rescue them from the life they've been forced into. What about your God's power to do that? You've forgotten why we came here. Isaiah looked at the tarp filled with firewood. Come on, boy. Help me get this back to the camp. You'll see power that you'll never forget. You've been listening to the audiobook edition of Spirit Blade, written and narrated by Peter Franson, with music by Unique Tracks and Bjorn A. Lynn. To experience the groundbreaking, cinematically produced audio dramas based on this story, visit www.spiritblade.net. Thanks for listening.